coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, student stories. The first paper that I read reported that the rates of violence against women in Brazil were over 50%. And when I thought back to my time working in Brazil, and I thought that one out of every two women that I had passed on the street had experienced this problem, I knew that I wanted to explore the problem further. This week's episode, three graduates from the class of 2018 share why they chose to work in public health and how they're looking to make the world healthier and safer. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, May 24th, 2018. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemuro. This week, more than 650 students from dozens of countries graduated from the Harvard Chan School. Each graduate has their own amazing story with powerful reasons for pursuing public health. We can't share them all, but this week we're sharing three stories. These graduates are addressing a range of issues, including violence against women, healthcare inequities, and the health challenges posed by cities. You'll learn why they pursued public health and how they're hoping to make an impact after graduation. First up, a doctor who's trying to change how we think about violence against women and girls. My name is Alice Hahn. I'm a Canadian-trained obstetrician and gynecologist, an instructor in obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology part-time at the Harvard Medical School, an adjunct lecturer at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto, and a staff physician at the Dimmick Center here in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm completing, I'm just wrapping up my MPH here at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Alice Hahn's interest in global and public health has been informed by the time she spent working in healthcare around the world. A six-week seminar in Vietnam during her undergraduate years focusing on maternal health. Later, a health equity internship in Brazil aimed at reducing health gaps between the rich and poor and work with Partners in Health in Rwanda, where she and others tried to strengthen rural health systems and address inequities. These experiences showed Han the importance of the intersection between public health and clinical medicine. In Rwanda, Han learned about the complexities of delivering health care in a resource-constrained setting, as well as the barriers patients face in accessing care. She says it was a challenging and humbling experience. As a physician, I felt so ineffective and unable to to provide help where it was needed. I remember trying to, um, seeing a need to to give blood to a patient, but there's no blood available. Uh, tests that needed to be done, but there, the, the equipment needed for the test wouldn't be available. Um, the, the challenges that patient had in, in getting care, um, challenges they had in arriving, walking days to arrive to the clinic. Also being in a rural area where there was not a lot of um, other support from other clinicians. I, I trained in a, in, a special, uh, in a tertiary care center in Toronto where every support possible was available. So moving from this to a rural area with um, very little uh, support was challenging. But also things like I remember being in the operating room and um, the lights going out at one point or needing to do a procedure, but there would be no uh, no sterile gloves in my size, which made manual dexterity very challenging. So on all fronts, just so many challenges and trying to work within that setting. It was this experience that led Han to decide she wanted to develop more formal skills in public health to address the healthcare challenges patients in Rwanda and other countries were facing. But these field experiences also broaden Han's perspective on social justice. And in recent years, she's worked to draw attention to violence against women and girls. In a 2017 TED Talk, she called it a global pandemic. A hidden disease is threatening everyone in this room and everyone watching. One out of every six people in the world, more than a billion people, 
will be directly affected by one form of this disease in their lifetimes. Han found that violence against women and girls, or VOG, is an area of public health that was greatly overlooked. She explained why she views violence against women as a pandemic and what can be done to address it. So in my mind, I conceptualize disease as a normal condition with a cause that affects an organism. So for the problems of violence against women, I see the abnormal condition as the violence. And um, I see that there are root causes of violence against women. So unlike viral diseases, the root causes of violence against women are sociopolitical in nature, like gender inequality and unequal power relations between men and women. But just like the viruses that cause diseases like the flu or smallpox, the ideas that lead to violence against women, um, they can spread and they can infect populations and they pose a threat to societies. I initially explored this idea or this area during my residency training. A mentor suggested the topic of looking at reproductive health outcomes of violence against women in Latin America and the Caribbean. And to be honest, I was at first hesitant to explore it because as an obstetrics and gynecology resident, um, I had previously not been exposed to this topic, nor had given a lot of thought to it. But the first paper that I read as background knowledge for the topic uh, reported that the rates of violence against women in Brazil were over 50%. And when I thought back to my time working in Brazil, and I thought that one out of every two women that I had passed on the street had experienced this problem, I knew that I wanted to explore the problem further. So what I found interesting was that my colleagues who study cervical cancer or preterm labor or gestational diabetes are never asked this question, but people always ask me with a bit of hesitation, why, why are you studying this? What's your, what's your personal story? So that begged the question to me, why is it that violence against women is not seen as important enough of a problem to merit uh, the research and advocacy by, by the medical community, regardless of whether someone has a personal story or not? So given the magnitude of the problem, and also the, the devastation that it exerts on women around the world, their communities, their families, and economies. I felt that this was an attitude that urgently needs to change. What I've seen is that this framework pushes people to view the problem in a new light. So I feel that often it's a problem that people see as too messy. It's, it's messy, it's complicated, and it's really difficult to do anything about. So what I think this framework does is highlight that it can be approached just as we approach diseases. So we can identify a root cause, and then we can target that root cause for prevention efforts, and then work to address the harmful effects of um, those that are affected. I can extend the analogy and say that just as we can vaccinate against diseases, we can we can think of vaccinating against violence against women. We can identify the root cause as, say, gender inequality um, as one of the root causes. And then we can use interventions that are aimed at that root cause. In my TED Talk, I give the example of a study that was um, held in Uganda where community leaders worked with both men and women to learn how to equalize power dynamics over three years. And eventually, this, this succeeded to cut a woman's risk of physical violence by half. We know that there's inter there are interventions that work and to prevent and reduce violence against women, and they don't take generations to produce results, but they work within the pro programmatic timelines of just a few years. Han says there's still much work to be done to better understand violence against women and to develop ways to prevent this. She says it's critical to use epidemiological tools to collect data to better understand the problem and the potentially unique cultural issues at play. 
Then, Han says it will be critical to scale up targeted interventions that are region and culture specific. As for her next steps, Han's still exploring options, but wants to continue her public health work. She plans to continue being an advocate and calling for health systems around the world to respond to violence against women. A key part of this, she says, is engaging more doctors and healthcare providers to join her and be part of the solution. So my name is Garang, and I study MPH 45 in health policy and management. Most recently, I moved here from Australia, Melbourne. That's Garang Dute, and his path to public health and medicine has been remarkable. Dute is a doctor and most recently completed a surgical residency at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And he spent most of his early life in refugee camps. Dute was born in South Sudan and grew up in a Kenyan refugee camp, eventually moving to Australia when he was 17. Having been born in South Sudan, uh, pretty much in the middle of the Second Civil War, and had to move um, to Ethiopia initially and then subsequently Kenya, and that's where I grew up. So I saw um, so much need for medical care in the setting that I grew up, mostly in refugee camp, and that spanned a period of about 17 years total. It was in these camps that Dute saw not only health challenges and inequities, but he also saw how difficult it was for governments or non-governmental organizations to address these issues. So uh, initially it was very visible that preventable diseases uh, claiming a lot of lives, but in the immediate sense of um, violence from war, there were a lot of other priorities as well, um, including physical safety. And so within the confines of displaced camps, um, international law applied differently because you are within your, um, your birthplace and that's different from when you engage with international agencies across international borders and so you're now a refugee and you can, you can get more services from NGOs once you are across the border. So that made the difference in terms of access to healthcare but still um, very significantly having challenges to do with preventable diseases and so Coming into medicine, I had that intention to still work at societal level to try to have preventative care and improve access. But fundamentally, in those settings, um, healthcare is much more delivered by things that are beyond clinical medicine, such as infrastructure to do with um, sanitation, as well as just the logistics of getting medications to people. So I, I remember um, immunizations being um, given under trees pretty much in open spaces um, where people have been displaced and could be in the middle of desert. And so there would be a lot of NGOs coming in, say UNICEF, and they would just do mass vaccination of children. Um, there would be weighing of children as well to um, try to track and um, gauge malnutrition. And that would be used by humanitarian agencies. Mm -hmm. So I, I got um, a different experience of what medicine is like mm -hmm. prior to coming into um, medical school in Australia. And so I've had a different lens as to what medicine should be able to provide uh, or healthcare as a whole. And so I've carried that lens through and it's what eventually led me down the route of pursuing um, studies in public health as well. Dude's pursuit of public health actually has grassroots origins. He started by simply reading what he called forgotten books in the library about core public health subjects, such as Melbourne's sewer system. But Dute also developed an interest in more modern concerns, such as inequities in health and access to care, particularly among Indigenous Australians. Dute says there's often a gap between what the evidence may show in a particular area and the actual process of making policy to address that. He's hoping his trainings at the Harvard Chan School will help him change that in Australia. 
One key lesson from the school, it's critical to understand key stakeholders and their priorities and then develop policies that balance often competing interests. Dude says this is especially important when you consider that the communities that may benefit from an intervention or policy change may not be well organized, such as lower income groups. Once Duke graduates, he'll be putting that into practice, working on healthcare policy issues in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet in Australia. Going forward, Dute eventually wants to return to clinical work while still working on ways to improve healthcare for lower income or underserved groups. And as he does his work, he'll take lessons he learned at the Harvard Chan School, including the power and importance of collaboration. I think the most important lesson I've learned is the power of working um, with people. So nothing can really happen however much you can do or however much you know without working with others. And so it's the power of network and being able to collaborate with others um, across disciplines as well across nations to make things happen. The final student we're profiling is helping to reimagine how we think about cities and public health. John Jay is graduating from the Doctor of Public Health program, and we spoke to him via Skype from his home in New Haven, Connecticut. My work in the DRPH program has focused on urban health, particularly using data science and looking for specific applications for local governments to reduce uh, risk in cities. Jay brings a wealth of different experiences to his work with cities and urban health. He trained as a lawyer, studied philosophy at Georgetown, worked in biomedical ethics for the Division of AIDS at the National Institutes of Health, and worked in global advocacy for universal health coverage. And all of these varied experiences in global health inspired his research into cities. What I saw there was that there was a long-standing focus on rural areas in developing countries. And that's a huge issue. Uh, But it seemed to me that there weren't enough people thinking specifically about the issues that we confront in urban environments, which are important in developing countries where we see mega cities with tens of millions of people. And also in the U.S. where most people live in uh, cities of various sizes. And the health effects of cities can be seen in many areas, ranging from infectious diseases to non-communicable diseases. For example, overcrowding can increase transmission of tuberculosis, or dense low-quality housing can lead to a greater risk of fire or burn injuries. And urban environments have also been linked to lifestyle shifts, Jay says. So people are increasingly living in environments where they are more sedentary. It's harder to walk, and they're in vehicles more often, which can increase risk for conditions such as heart disease or type 2 diabetes. Jay saw this play out firsthand during a winter immersion program in Mumbai, India. We were working there with a health center based in the Dharavi slum, which is uh, one of the large, the world's largest slums, uh, almost a million people living there. And it's the extreme end of urban concentrated poverty. And so working on tuberculosis there, I mean, it's like this is one of the characteristic problems of uh, crowding and lack of resources in urban environments. Jay says this is an exciting time for his research because cities are now generating so much data. The information ranges from public records about homes and property to Google Street View data, which provides detailed photos of urban environments around the world. And Jay put this data to work with his dissertation, which used city property data to analyze fire risk in Portland, Oregon. The data that the city has on your house, like how big it is, what it was built, how many bedrooms, those kinds of data are strong predictors of the potential fire risk. So working with the fire department there and with David Hemingway, uh, we were able to predict risk 
uh, for every property in the city of Portland. We did that using data from 2012 through 2015. And we knew what had happened in 2016. So we uh, made those predictions for 2016 and we were able to compare them to the actual fire outcomes and found that we predicted them much better than uh, if you were to sort of uh, go, about, go about it by random chance, which actually is how most fire departments operate. They will do inspections based on you know, alphabetical order or uh, something like that. And so prioritizing building inspections and home safety visits can make those programs much more efficient. Fire engineering is actually a really well-developed field. And there's been much less work looking at the spatial distribution of fires within cities because it's totally non-random. Like we think of fires as these random or sort of sudden like acts of God when in fact they are strongly correlated with uh, various factors, uh, particularly when you look at um, fire injuries. So the the types of people who uh, die or get severely injured in fires tend to be people who are more vulnerable across a range of social indicators. So there's really an important connection with other issues. After graduating, Jay will be using this approach to cities and data to address gun violence. Jay will be completing a postdoctoral fellowship with David Hemingway, director of the Harvard Injury Control Center. The HICRC is part of a consortium based at the University of Michigan to prevent child firearm injuries, which are the second leading cause of death among children in the U.S. Once again, Jay will be using city data to identify trends and hopefully develop solutions. The same kind of disparities that we see for other health outcomes, we see very, very strongly for firearm injuries in cities. So that there are, even from block to block in a given city, uh, you see differences in injury risk. Uh, and then certainly at the neighborhood level, there's, um, within any given city, there are some neighborhoods where you're very, very unlikely to get um, to be injured by a gun and others where you are much more likely to be injured by a gun. And um, with there's a, a, a strong uh, racial component to that, uh, to those disparities too. I've been working with satellite images and Google Street View images and using machine learning to um, use those data sources to better understand the physical environment. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the key um, aspect of my work now is to think about what do high-risk places look like in terms of the physical environment, and what does that tell us about how we might be able to change the physical environment to reduce risk? Even down to the individual, like to the individual street corners that are dangerous. Like, what would happen if we put a park in instead of that empty parking lot that nobody uses? Like, is it possible that that would reduce violence? That was John Jay talking about his work on integrating data science and urban health. Thank you to John and also to Alice Hahn and Garang Dut for taking time to talk with us during this busy graduation season. And if you want to read more about the recent Harvard Chan convocation, you'll find much more on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can now find us on Spotify. So if you're a fan of this episode or any others, be sure to share it with your friends. 